Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Giles from Medical Medical Publishers in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. So earlier this week, I was listening to National Public Radio's This American Life podcast, which probably many of you also listen to, which featured blind comedian Daryl Lennox, who talked about how his trust in strangers dramatically shifted after he lost his sight. It got me thinking about how being vision impaired is truly an obstacle to care in some circumstances, and it brought me to the idea of this particular in-depth episode. Today's episode features two interviews, and we start off by exploring the association of vision loss on healthcare utilization, functional implications of vision loss, ethical and communication issues in patient-centered care delivery, patient engagement, and adherence. And in our second interview, we take a deeper dive into a clinical study, so an academic study, which has a more optimistic ending in which Physicians Weekly's Chris Cole interviews Andrea Laura Kostler, a plastic and reconstructive surgeon at the Byers Eye Institute at Stanford University School of Medicine in California. And she talks about her study, which is just published this month in August 2022, about tepratumumab and how it helps in retaining functional vision. The Physicians Weekly Podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. But first, going back to the first interview, I interview Professor Alan R. Morse from the Department of Ophthalmology in Columbia University in New York about his study published in JAMA Ophthalmology looking at the association of vision loss with hospital use and costs among older adults. Enjoy listening. So thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Morse. Can you tell me a little bit about your study that you recently published? Well, we began becoming interested in what happens with patients who are visually impaired in hospital 30 years ago, actually, with some preliminary studies. And this study was a large study with about 25,000 patients using administrative database. We didn't actually see patients. We saw their records. And we compared patients with, with mild, moderate, and severe vision loss with patients who didn't have that to see what happens. Do they stay longer? Do they get readmitted more often? Do they cost more? We didn't look at some other factors that I'm looking at now in another study, like how satisfied were they, how engaged were they, how do they feel about their care. Because we weren't seeing patients, we couldn't do that. Now, are these your standard people with reduced vision, or are these specific types of vision loss patients? These are, in this study, we were looking We were looking at the usual rough measures of, of acuity, which is what who likes to, to use. And I've been very critical of that because it rules out patients, for example, with glaucoma, who have good central acuity, but don't have good peripheral vision often. So this was standard vision loss from chart data, administrative data, looking at how they do, how they do in, in hospital and how they do afterwards. And how they do? Worse. They stay in longer. They are, they're readmitted more often. They have more adverse results, although we didn't talk a lot about adverse results in the study. They don't do as well. The reasons are really very simple. If you were deaf and you're admitted to hospital, most hospitals would put some kind of an indicator by your name outside your door so that people coming in would understand that you're deaf and they had to watch how they're communicating. When you're blind or visually impaired, you don't have that obvious thing. Most patients who are visually impaired don't look any different than you or I. So a dietary aide coming in and asks them what they want for lunch, 
they can't read the menu. Right. But she didn't know that. So she says, um, and gives them the standard thing, which is something they don't like. Uh, a tech coming in isn't able to be helpful. The housekeeping staff don't put things back in the same place. So when they get out of bed, if they're allowed out of bed, I'll talk about that in a minute. If they're allowed out of bed, there are increased risk for falls. So surgeons, for example, knowing that their patient has vision loss, often will say to the nurse, make sure he doesn't get out of bed. I don't want him screwing up my surgery. But what happens when you stay in bed? You don't get better as quickly. You don't recover as quickly. You might, in the case of, of one fairly famous politician here, nameless, they left a catheter in for two weeks. They didn't want him getting out of bed. What happened? He got an infection and stayed in another couple of weeks. So bad things happen when you stay in bed. Good things happen when you get out of bed. But getting out of bed if you're visually impaired almost always requires the assistance of someone because hospitals, as you know, are crowded places. Their halls are crowded. There are obstacles. There are other patients. There are carts. And they need help with that. And the lighting is not always the best. So bad things happen when you stay in bed. Good things happen when you get out of bed. But if you're visually impaired, you usually don't get out of bed that often. These are very actionable items, of course. It's really about care organization, isn't it? What are your practical solutions? It's care organization, absolutely. But it's also being willing to understand patients. There's a blurb out this morning I was reading before we got on in one of the surgical journals. And it says, you know, patient participation in surgery really isn't so useful. We really don't have to talk. You know, what do they know? They don't know anything about, about surgical procedures and whether I want to make the cut at a 45-degree angle or whatever. So we really don't need their, their help. That totally gets away from the importance of patients' involvement in their own care. Of course, they don't know how to make the surgical cut different or better. But being involved is a very positive thing for them in their life. So by not involving them, we're doing a lot of damage. Number one, identify them as visually impaired. On admission, wouldn't it be simple to have a simple chart behind the counter, like they do in motor vehicle here, and ask you to read the green line or the red line or the whatever you can read? Wouldn't that be easy? Do we take not in vision, but in other things, do we routinely take blood pressure? If you're an internal medicine specialist, sure. What if you're an ophthalmologist right. or a dentist who's going to use anesthesia? Do we take blood pressure? No. So we don't understand how to properly involve patients in their own care, and they really need to be. So we can identify them as being visually impaired. We can put some kind of a notation outside the door so that people coming in know that. We can better train all hospital staff how to work with patients with vision loss, how to help them in their, their care journey. We absolutely can and should do far better discharge planning. I had a, I had a patient in a program that I was involved with a number of years ago who was discharged from hospital at 10 o'clock at night which happens frequently here, and was sent home to an empty apartment with no food. And that was on a weekend. So her aide was not due to come back until Monday. Now, did she do well? No, she fell, right? So it increases the risk of falls. Falls is a major cause of morbidity and mortality in people with vision loss. And we don't do anything to address that. Do we train PTs and OTs how to help people with vision loss? Not particularly. 
except that if the vision loss is from stroke. Somehow, miraculously, if, the, if I lose my vision because of stroke, they know exactly what to do. But if the cause of vision loss is anything else, they have no idea what to do. So when I talk to them, I say, what's the difference to you as a, as a PT or an OT? The patient has vision loss. Ask them what they can do, what they can't do. One simple question from the VFQ, which is used internationally now, because of your vision, are there things you want to do and can't? They'll tell you. They'll tell you what they need help with. But you have to communicate with them. One of the problems in the Department of Ophthalmology is time is so limited. Physician time is so limited, and they have so much to do, and the electronic charting and everything else sometimes takes them longer. So they don't get to important things like medications in general until the last 56 seconds of the visit. They often don't tell the patient the name of the med, what it's for, and will tell them instructions such as, take two twice a day. Well, you and I know it's two twice a day, but we also know it's not four at once. So we see patients who say, yes, I took my meds this morning. All of them. So talking to patients is really critical, getting them to understand their disease. In glaucoma, for example, about 30% of patients weren't told they could lose their vision. They didn't understand the importance of medication adherence, which is my current area of interest, and tend to be less adherent. They waste eye drops because the methodology of giving them is so cumbersome, and the bottle doesn't have very many extra drops, so they run out before the end of the month and simply will not take their meds for the last three, four, five, six days. So every month they're losing a little bit more vision, imperceptible, but cumulative. So engaging patients, what one researcher here calls activation, is really, really, really important. How do you gauge the activation of your patient? Well, first thing is to understand activation and understand what it involves. It involves self-efficacy, concepts like that. Depression certainly impacts engagement. Visually impaired people have much more depression than people who aren't vision impaired. That seems like common sense, but it's kind of like saying that patients who have cancer have more depression. Sure, they have a potentially really bad outcome, and they don't like to think about it. Helping them through those journeys and helping them at each stage of the journey becomes real important. First thing to do to address activation is to understand it. Second thing is to assess it. So the study we're doing right now is, is looking at a series of measures. We selected them because they're well, well validated, but they're also brief. And our hope is at the end, we can cut out a lot of items. Just as the VFQ you know, winnowed down to its current iteration, I use the, the nine most often. I don't know too many people who use the 36 question VFQ, but it's there. Can we assess these behavioral attributes in patients? Once we assess them and we see that some of them are problematic or low self-efficacy, I don't believe I can do it, what do we do? Really hard to ask physicians to spend more time with their patients for which they're not going to be reimbursed anymore. So we have to look at changing practice models and perhaps have practice extenders who can do something as simple as talking to patients about their health care might have significant impact on outcome. Where do we need to be in five years from here? 
what are the clear outcomes that we need to achieve? Every patient in healthcare ought to have some standardized measures taken by their physician. Blood pressure. Certainly, internal medicine, height, weight, they all take it. Do they use it? No, but they put it in the chart because they, they're required to put it in the chart. Uh, so we have to have certain base measures. They have to be measured over time. If my blood pressure today was 140 over whatever, by itself, 140 is not so terrible, except that a year ago, it was 110. So it's gone up substantially. What's going on with me? Understanding where patients are, what's impacting them, and how your care of them and addressing their disease or disorder can be helpful would really help a lot. So I think certain standardized measures up front, certain practice extenders to do the intervention that physicians don't have the time to do, and understanding and spending some time with patients. How many patients get to talk like we're talking now with their care provider? It's pretty rare. The average encounter is less than 15 minutes. And the average patient is allowed to talk. This is a study, I guess, came out 15 years ago or more. The average patient is allowed to talk less than 20 seconds before their physician interrupts them and says, got it. I understand what your problem is. Really? (laughs) Based on 15 seconds of introduction? So talking to patients is is very salutary, trying to understand them and understanding that sending a patient home who is going to end up back in the hospital because of something like a fall or medication on adherence or bad nutrition because they don't have food uh, is is really defeating the purpose of having them get health care. In the old days, 30 years ago, keeping patients in hospitals longer was a good thing. Because you get paid by the day. But now that everything is, is based on, on DRGs, length of, stay, you know, length of stay, we want to get it shorter and shorter and shorter. You know, how quickly can we get the patient out? And we don't focus a lot on what they're getting out to. To a poor aftercare facility, to a home health environment that gives them two hours of home care a day and leaves them alone for 22 hours a day, to using a bathroom that doesn't have assist rails on the toilet or inadequate lighting in the kitchen. That's not going to help patients. It may not hurt their cancer, but it's not going to help them overall. So those little things, paying attention to the details is really, really important. Interesting. Very strong work. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Glad to talk to you. Next, Physicians Weekly's Chris Cole interviews Andrea Laura Kostler. She's a plastic and reconstructive surgeon at the Bayer Eye Institute at Stanford University School of Medicine in California. Hoping um, you could tell me a little bit about why it's important to study the effect of teprotumumab on ocular surface disease in active thyroid eye disease. And in other words, what needs exist for your research? Well, thank you for the opportunity to discuss this research. I really appreciate being able to talk about thyroid eye disease and being able to find new treatments for our patients that are suffering from this condition. So thyroid eye disease is an autoimmune inflammatory disorder that can have a variety of visual sequelae and can also have a really significant impact on our patients' quality of life and on their daily activities. And um, we know that tepertibumab was recently approved by the FDA for the treatment of thyroid eye disease. 
Many studies have shown that it is very effective for treating patients with active moderate to severe thyroid eye disease. But the patients with thyroid eye disease suffer from a variety of ocular sequelae, as I mentioned. And we wanted to take a deeper dive into seeing how tepertibumab may affect the ocular surface and ocular surface disease in these patients. And I'll just continue on to say that we know that about 65% of patients with thyroid eye disease complain of ocular surface symptoms and have dry eye disease or dry eye disease symptoms. And so we wanted to take a look and see if tepertibumab can have a positive impact on treating ocular surface disease and improving the symptoms for these patients. Could you talk a little bit more about what you and your colleagues, you know, specifically set out to determine with the study, then also, you know, how you went about doing that, how the, how the study was conducted? Sure. So the purpose of the study was to investigate the effect of tepertibumab on both qualitative and quantitative measures of ocular surface disease in patients who also had thyroid eye disease. And again, the, the, the reasoning for the study is that thyroid eye disease is an autoimmune inflammatory condition, and dry eye disease or ocular surface disease is also an inflammatory condition. And so our purpose was to see that if we treated patients with thyroid eye disease and treated the original cause of the ocular surface inflammation, if this would have a positive impact on their um, qualitative and quantitative measures of this disease. And so the, what we looked at, we, we had about 16 patients that were treated with tepertibumab. And at baseline, we gathered a variety of qualitative and quantitative measures. And so to be more specific, what that means is we gave every single patient a quality of life questionnaire that's specifically related to their vision function. We also gave every patient a speed questionnaire. The speed questionnaire is basically a measure of patients' frequency and the severity of their dry eye disease. We also did baseline measurements of their tear volume through a Schirmer's test, which is a, a little strip that we put behind the eyelid to collect tear volume, and then we measure how, many, how much tears they produce. We also took a look at mybography, and mybography is an infrared method of evaluating the meibomian glands to determine meibomian gland dropout rate. And then uh, we also took a look at their clinical exam for things like chemosis and conjunctival injection. So we, we evaluated these 16 patients at baseline, and then we took a look at them again after 24 weeks at the end of their treatment. So tepertibumab is eight treatments every three weeks, and so we took a look at them at 24 weeks after they had finished treatment, and we compared their baseline and their 24-week data. What findings do you feel are important to stress to our physicians and readers? Sure. So what we found was, was very exciting. Now, remember, this is a small study. It's 16 patients baseline and at week 24. But out of the 16 patients that we evaluated, they had a mean age of 52 years. The majority, 13 of them, were female. And what we found was that there was a significant improvement in patients' quality of life related to their visual function. The, the p-value for that was 0.00018, very significant improvement in the patient's estimation of their vision functioning quality of life. We also found a significant improvement in their speed scores, which means that patients were 
experiencing a significant improvement in the frequency and severity of their dry eye symptoms. Also, we found that conjunctival injection and chemosis and other ocular surface measures on clinical examination resolved or improved in all patients. When we looked at Shermer test results and mybography, we also found an improvement in Shermer test results and also in the mybography evaluation of meibomian gland dropout rate. Now, it's important to note that the Shermer tear volumes in the meibomian gland dropout rate were not significant when we evaluated them objectively. But I think that there's still significant importance in the amount of improvement that our patients experienced. Again, it's a very small study, and so we need to collect more patients. And I think that this value will become significant with a higher N or a higher amount of patients. But what we found when we looked at the Shermer test results was that there was an improvement in all patients when we looked at the average improvement at 24 weeks compared to baseline. So at baseline, the Schirmer tier score was 17 millimeters. And after 24 weeks, it increased by about three points or three millimeters to 20.14 millimeters. But what I think is more important is that when we looked at patients that had a baseline abnormally low tier volume of less than 10 millimeters, at five minutes, we found that their Shermer tear volumes almost doubled at 24 weeks when compared to baseline. And that's very significant for patients. If they go from a Shermer tear volume of eight millimeters to 16 millimeters, that can mean significant uh, relief of dry eye symptoms for these patients. Now, again, when we looked at them as a whole, it wasn't significant, but I think that for those patients that experienced that improvement, that is a big win for those patients. Again, when we looked at the mybography, we found that there was an improvement in the grade of meibomian gland loss in about 35% of our patients. And while, and so I think for those 35 patients to see structural improvement in meibomian gland dropout rate, I think that is very clinically significant for our patients. We also found that uh, patients' meibomian gland dropout rate decreased from 46% at baseline to 35% at 24 weeks overall. And that was close to being significant, but wasn't, but still very clinically meaningful for our patients. And so what we found was that Tepertibumab did improve both qualitative and quantitative measures of ocular surface disease, as well as visual functioning-related quality of life measures at week 24 compared to baseline. And so we think that this is really important for our patients. It makes a big visual impact for them, and we need to study this further. Do you know of anyone who has plans to you know, look at this in a larger group of patients and or you know, longer-term outcomes? Yes, actually, we we were so excited about these results that we decided to report this um, kind of earlier on in our study. We are still actively treating patients with thyroid eye disease. And as I mentioned, the majority of these patients also have ocular surface symptoms or dry eye disease. So we are still enrolling patients. We're still evaluating patients and collecting more data. Uh, there are also other people interested in this phenomenon. Dr. Ray Douglas and his team evaluated this and presented some similar findings regarding Shermer tear strips and Shermer volumes increasing with tepertubumab treatment. 
And so we've talked about teaming up together and, you know, I'm always happy to collaborate with others when it comes to finding new answers and new treatments for our patients with thyroid eye disease. So we are looking at this further. I think other people are looking at this further. And we also have other projects related to ocular surface disease and thyroid eye disease. And we hope to have more data for the audience in the coming months. Good to know. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe and stay healthy. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 